Good morning once again. It's another lovely morning. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. And we're going to look this morning at Revelation chapter 4. It's only 11 verses. And before I start to try and explain as God would have me by His Spirit to explain His Word by way of teachings, let me just breathe a word of prayer in brief. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for another beautiful day you've given us and for waking us up, keeping us clothed in our right minds as we move in and out of doors, as we do things throughout this day. I pray that your Holy Spirit will keep us, Lord, so sane that we'll be able to do those things that are right and good and honest in your sight. Father, we give ourselves afresh to you as we listen to this, your word. Let it come to us with clarity and power and find place in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 4 is only 11 verses we are looking at. <clears throat> Just in brief, this chapter is the introduction to the great day of God. The future of the world is now entrusted to the Lamb of God, O Jesus Christ. And John is now taken up into heaven where he is given a vision of what is to take place in the future. It is clear that it would seem, you know, um, in all probability that John was transported by the Holy Spirit, even though his physical body was still on earth. More or less, it seemed like he was having this vision and his spirit was taken up into heaven now where the Lord Jesus Christ, through the spirit, would show him things around heaven, things that would come to pass at some future day. We find here that since he wrote those seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, and he had sent them on, the scene has now changed, and nothing more is mentioned about the church until later in the book of Revelation. That is from chapter 4 right through to Revelation chapter 22. So all through those chapters, the majority of them, nothing is mentioned as concerning God's church. It is all prophecy. What was happening then what was about to happen in future. After John had received the messages which he wrote and sent to the seven churches in Asia, he was given a vision of things which shall be hereafter or in time to come. He saw a door open in heaven and heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet speaking to him. No doubt that voice was very loud indeed. Inviting him to come up toward this place, probably the throne that was set in heaven, and he would be shown things that will happen or take place in the future. John was in the spirit and saw one sitting upon the throne who was like a jasper and a sardine stone. Now the jasper in for sizes, the hardness that is associated with God's government. 
Jasper is hard and unyielding in nature. Such is the government of God. His laws are firmly fixed. They are unyielding and merciless. There is no pity. You see, God has given his laws. He's given his word. And just imagine as a parent, you have a child in your home and you give that child an order. You have rules and regulations in the home. So therefore, you expect the child to abide by those rules and regulations. And when that child is being warned, you know, if he or she do something that is wrong, you correct the child. And, you know, the child is being warned not to do it. And some children are very, um, you know, we would say disobedient, as it were, you know, and presumptuous and like to have their own way. So therefore, you meet out punishment. It's the same as far as God is concerned. You see, he doesn't give, um, you know, what I would say, second chances and more chances and so many chances you obey or otherwise expect to receive punishment. We get more than second chances, you know. So the sardine suggests the holiness that is joined with God's government. It is a deep, fiery, flashing red and reminds us that God is a consuming fire. Now, if you read Exodus chapter 24, verse 17, and Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, you'll find there, you know, something that would more or less tells one about, you know, God who is a consuming fire. And fire is something, as we know, that consumes. It will burn. It could also use to purify as well. The first and last of these stones was like the jasper and the sardine or sardius stone. We are to understand that even though God is unyielding and holy in his judgment, yet he is merciful. You see, um, when God was about to pour his wrath upon his people Israel, whom he had brought from Egyptian slavery after 430 years, um, you know, Moses prayed for them, and God's mercy and his love went beyond his wrath. That's the almighty God in whom we serve and should trust. He's such a God. He's not always quick and ready, you know, when people commit sin, whether ignorantly or willfully, and they're being convicted by his spirit, you know, to um, confess and, you know, receive salvation, receive forgiveness, receive deliverance. Um, you know, God is not quick to just, you know, get rid of the individual. He's ever merciful. He's merciful because the one to whom all judgment will be given is himself, both God and man. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the God-man who walked this earth, John 5, 22 and 27. You'll find that in these two verses, it speaks about the judgment of the father being given, handed over, in other words, to the son. And one must honor the son just as one would honor the father. He's on the same level. You see, they are all three, father, son, and Holy Spirit, partake of the same substance. 
there is no divorce between them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all members or beings of the one Godhead. Now, there was a rainbow around the throne, and it was like an emerald. The rainbow that encircled the throne reminds us that judgment, when it comes, will be in keeping with God's promise. With the earth, as he had given this here, you'll remember during the flood time when he um, spoke to Noah and tell him to build an ark because all flesh has come up before him and they're right for judgment. Man's heart was evil continually and 120 years Noah was building the ark and no doubt during that time he was preaching and inviting not only his family, but others as well as the past, and they saw him building it, and no doubt they wondered where would he get water to float it or to sort of, um, you know, let it move from one end to the next to sail it, as it were. We see how these boats go down the wide ocean and big ships and the sail across the deep ocean. Where's he going to get water? Because no rain used to fall in those days. So no doubt many of them laugh, just like how we have the generation today, how to laugh at the preaching and teaching of God's word. And this was given to know the promise that God would not again destroy the whole earth by a flood. Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 to 17. You could read these uh, verses for yourself. So the rainbow implies that God's judgment will be flawless or perfect. <clears throat> God's judgment is formal or according to form or a method of arrangement. When it comes, you know, to God's judgment and we stand before God, we all will have to one day, um, you know, what will be the plea of mankind? The only plea for mankind is guilty. You see? So therefore, we need to stop judging others because we are all guilty. It will not be like man's judgment in a court of law here in this land or in any country for that matter. You know, um, where man, it is said, is innocent until proven guilty. Now, that won't be the case in God's law court when we stand you know to be judged by him and someone when the guilty verdict is passed it can be proven false sometimes you know sometimes that happens here we find that some people are being shut away locked up as it were and put in prison for so many years and they were not guilty in the first place but they were found guilty in a court of law, hence they suffer, you know, so many years and the law so many years, and then they have to be compensated for those many years, you know, being put in prison because of false witnesses. But in God's court of law, when we stand before him in judgment, that wouldn't be the case because all of us, whether we are innocent or we think that we are innocent or the jury here, literally, physically speaking, think, well, oh, how do you find the um, defendant? 
Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. But the individual is guilty. How do you find the defendant? Not guilty or guilty? And the verdict is given, all of us are guilty. Whether innocent or guilty, we are all guilty. For the Bible tells us all have sinned. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. We find here that John said he saw the elders around the throne who act as jury, not in the sense of passing judgment on guilty men, but they act in obedience and approve the righteous acts of God who is the judge. So they were not there to pass judgment on anyone. They were there to approve, to go along with and to say, yes, God's judgment is just. It is right. And God's judgment is fearful judgment. What proceeded from out of the throne came the sights and sounds that were very frightening. What were they? The Bible said there were lightnings and thunderings and voices. So this reminds us that God's judgment is something to be feared. Now, Israel down in the desert after they had come out of Egyptian slavery, when God told Moses to come up to the mountain and he must set, you know, a, a line of demarcation, set a mark. Don't tell the people, don't come near to the mountain. Don't touch it, otherwise they will die. And when God spake, you know, Moses, you know, was fearful. But however, he did went to the mountain. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 to 18, God had called him up on the mountain and he was there with God for about, what, six weeks, 40 days and 40 nights, and God gave him the law and the commandments. And the word of God tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Moses himself was so frightened at the sight, you know, that he shook with terrible fear. Just imagine. For me, he was the man the Bible speaks about that went nearest to God. At one time, Moses even asked God to show him his glory. But God said to Moses, you can't see me, Moses, and live. Otherwise, you'll die. <laughs> but God, nevertheless, you know, put him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over, you know, Moses, and God said, when I pass by, I will put my hands over you while you are in the cleft of the rock. And when I pass, I will take away my hands and see my back part, but not my face. Well, that's about the closest. John saw visions of government that are currently with us even right now today, and which have to do with Israel and the nations, not the church. And there were three things that were fixed in John's mind as we read, you know, in these first six verses of Revelation chapter 4. And what were these three things that John saw that were fixed in his mind? He saw one, an unforgettable throne. Memorable, it will live with John, you know, no doubt until the day he got died. He wouldn't forget it at all. An unforgettable throng. You know, this was a crowd 
the Bible speaks about, as we will see, I think in the next chapter, chapter 5, a very large crowd indeed, which no one could number. And he experienced an unforgettable thrill. This was like a quivering sensation running through John's nerves and body. Just imagine you see something, you know, or something happened to you that really shake you up and you feel, you know, such a thrill going through you. Um, as it were, you have little cobwebs. <laughs> That's the other thing. It is believed that the throne is mentioned 12 times in chapter 4. You could read this for yourself and see in this chapter, 12 times the throne is mentioned, and the throne is mentioned five times in chapter 5. In chapter 4, it is supremely a throne of government. In other words, it holds the highest authority. And in chapter 5, it is preeminently a throne of grace. In other words, it is superior, is higher in position than any other throne. The high priest in Israel was commanded to wear a breastplate studded with 12 precious stones engraved or imprinted with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. You'll read about this in Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 and 20. I could read from verses 17 to 21, which makes much more sense. This was a sign of the people ever being upon God's heart, the place of love and affection. They were always upon the heart of God, and his grace was upon them. God's judgment is also factual or actual. It is based on facts. It is based on what is known to be true, and God knows Every one of us, not one of us can hide from him. It doesn't matter how dark, um, you know, the place may be. Um, morning, noon, and night, it doesn't mar matter to God because where God is, there is light. So therefore, God sees everything that we do. So therefore, um, all our secrets are laid bare before God. We call certain things secrets. Just that you have in this country and no doubt in other countries what is known as secret order, as it were. The seven spirits the Bible speaks about here of God are representatives of the Holy Spirit in his fullness and power. Um, seven is a number of perfection. So therefore, the Spirit of God is perfect. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his forgiveness. He's perfect in his compassion. He's perfect in his mercy. God is perfect. We hear this word used here in this country and around other nations as well and people, you know, how the boss, um, oh, this is perfect. The other is perfect. Oh, I am perfect. Oh, she is perfect or he is perfect or whatever it is. There's no perfection in man. Not one of us. We're not perfect creatures. We all have faults and failures. Every one of us. We have limitations. The only one that is perfect is Almighty God. Our perfection, effort is to be perfection that has real meaning and last. It has to be of God and come from God. Um, Otherwise, it's not really perfection. 
as we may think or feel. The Holy Spirit will be present as chief prosecutor or person who will pursue sinners for judgment at the throne as his work is to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. You'll read that in John chapter 16, verse 8. That's his ministry when he comes. That is what he's supposed to do. And he's doing it. And he will continue to do it until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth. He, the Holy Spirit, has perfect knowledge of every thought, word, and deed of every person, both old and young. All the facts will be laid bare before him, and there will be no hiding place for anyone. We can't hide. We hide down here from our fellow men. You know, we love doing it. All of us, we love doing it, whether we are Christians or not. We all love hiding at some point in time. And I suppose, you know, in a sense, it is good to hide at certain times and in certain instances, you know. But we can't hide from God because he sees everything we do and he knows everything we do and he sees everywhere we go. So therefore, we can't hide from God. God's judgment will be final. It will be like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, and will be fixed and beyond recall. It will not be called back, in other words. It will not be like moving a case from a lower court to the higher one and then to the Supreme Court as far as, you know, God's judgment is concerned where we are concerned when we stand before God to be judged of the things that we've done here in this life, in our body, whether good or bad. You see, you can't appeal to anyone. There will be no lawyer that you can um, have, as it were, to represent you. So therefore, you're not satisfied in one court as to the decision so you can appeal. And you go to the high court and maybe appeal again, you go to the Supreme Court, the highest court of the land. You see, there's no court for anyone to appeal to. All the decisions and decrees will come from God's throne and it will be final. The four beasts mentioned in verse six of this chapter, Revelation chapter four, having eyes before and behind were probably the cherubim, which were the highest and most intelligent beings of all the angels. They were quick of understanding. And these are seen in the book of Genesis, you know, um, that's where the first scene and mentioned about when man, when man was driven out of the garden of Eden by God because he ate the fruit. So therefore he knew knowledge, he had knowledge in other words, and he knew good from evil. So God said, well, let's he put forth his hand now and take of the tree of life and live forever. What? In a sinful state? No, God won't have it. So therefore, God gave him his marching orders. And he put cherubim, you know, at the east, and a flaming sword flashing, you know, both ways to ward off anyone from entrance into the garden where the tree of life still was at that time. So these... 
angelic beings here, intelligent beings, cherubim, they were first seen in connection with man exit coming out of the Garden of Eden. That's in Genesis chapter 3, 23 to 24, where they are in agreement with God's rights as creator. They are seen in the tabernacle again in agreement with God's rights as redeemer, not only creator, but redeemer. You see, the tabernacle was a moving shelter. It could be um, erected, and every time Israel moved from one place to another, it was dismantled. And the Levites, who were priests, were responsible for such a service. They were the only ones that God had chosen, the Levites, who were priests. In order to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levite. But not all Levites were priests. So they had um, such a responsibility of erecting and dismantling this movable shelter. God's judgment will be fatal or mortal, subject to death. There won't be any lamb again, no sir, to intervene, to come in between, as it were. As in the case of Isaac, as we see in Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, when his father Abraham held a knife in his hand to kill him. Now God had said to Abraham, you see that boy you have there, that son of yours, Isaac, you love him dearly. I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains that I will show you. And when Abraham obeyed God and took his son there, he had the wood and the fire and the sun, you know, at this time was on top of the altar which Abraham had built and the wood and he put Isaac on top of the wood and he took the knife to kill him and God called him out of heaven and hauled his hand before he plunged it into his son Isaac. And God provided a ram the Bible speaks about in place of his son Isaac, he took the ram and he offered as a sacrifice. Just like Jesus Christ came and he was offered up as a sacrifice for us. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So this throne will be terrible. The judgment will be fatal as there will be no lamb to come between as a substitute for man's sin. Not at that point in time. The Lamb has been given Jesus Christ once and for all. Just like how um, the Ram was given as a sacrifice once in place of Isaac, who was pointing to the true Lamb of God that would come, Jesus Christ, once and for all. Now, not it was once during Abraham's time, it was once during the Lord's time when he was on earth. So therefore, there won't be any lamb, you know, at the judgment seat of Christ. You see? Looking at verses 7 and 8 now, Revelation chapter 4, we're still in. The four living creatures that are around, were around the throne were probably the cherubim, again, who acknowledged God as the holiest one in the universe. Matthew, in his gospel, pictures... Jesus Christ as a lion. And Matthew looked 
at his ancestry to his world in chapter one of Matthew and describes him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark pictures him as a calf, you know, looking at these two animals. Here, a lion is a very strong animal and he doesn't back down from anyone. It doesn't matter how big an animal you are, the lion doesn't back down from you. Especially when he's hungry, he'll just come after you. A mark pictures him as a calf. A calf is a very delicate animal. You know, he wouldn't hurt, as it were, we would say, not even a fly. And he describes him as the one who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. He came as a servant. See him washing the disciples' feet, you know, and wiping them, you know, with the towel where he was girded. I think this is in John chapter 13. You know, just imagine the master, you know, we would say the manager, the CEO, stooping down and washing, you know, somebody's feet. Could you imagine that in this day and time? No. No, you would have to wash his feet instead. But Jesus Christ did it the other way around. He didn't come for people, you know, to serve him, but he came to serve. And this is something, you know, that even in the church, sometimes some of us, we find it hard to do. And this is what we are called upon to do, to serve others. Mark shows Jesus as the one who gave his life first in service and then in sacrifice. And Luke pictures Christ also as a man. And he traces his family lineage of Jesus from first Adam, showing that he is the last Adam, the eternal son of God. And John pictures Christ, you know, or rather his picture of Christ is that of an eagle. And we know that an eagle is a bird that flies very high indeed. He can soar away at heights that probably other birds can't. And he could see, he has eyes, you know, that could penetrate even down to the earth. And he comes down, you know, to collect his prayer and he's back up again. He was the one who came from his highest home in heaven, John speaks about him, you know, in um, John chapter 1, verse 17. John chapter 1, rather, and John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, in his prayer, when he prayed for himself, you know, and um, you see there in that prayer of Jesus Christ, he talks about how he came from heaven, and John chapter 6, verses 48 to 51 to as well. You read those verses, you will see where he speaks about coming down as the bread from heaven, the bread that God gave to his people who were in the desert, the manna that they ate. The living creatures that are described by John as having the face of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle shows that each one reflects an appearance or look 
like or has a resemblance of the Lord. So as I said, a lion is a strong animal, Jesus Christ, who is stronger than Christ. And you know, a calf, docile. And a man has wisdom. He could make decisions, you know? Yes. And an eagle, he soars very high. All these reflect the appearance or look like a resemblance of Jesus Christ. The reason why they are so much like him is because they are so much with him. When Moses descended from the mountain after spending 40 days and nights in God's presence, the skin of his face shone with God's glory. Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. And these living creatures, being the most intelligent of the angelic beings, are full of eyes within. It means that they have clear insight into all matters, the angelic beings, not the disturbing. They worship him that sits upon the throne with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, knowing him to be the holiest one in the universe. Three times they cry, Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, 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 they cry, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And who is holy like unto God? It is not one of us. Looking at the last few verses in chapter 4, verses 9, 10, and 11, these last three verses, the elders acknowledge Jesus as the highest one in the universe. Some believe that the elders are representatives of the Old and New Testament saints, possibly the patriarchs in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, and even the church too as well, you know, um, in the New Testament. The 24 elders seem to be angelic beings, such as those Paul referred to directly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. The worship they rendered to the Lord by the 24 elders is natural. It is of their own free will as they acknowledge Jesus as the highest one in the universe. And even though they were high and lofty, not here, brethren, that these elders, even though they were high and lofty, they made themselves low at the feet of Jesus Christ. Their crowns that were a sign of their right to rule were taken off and cast at his feet. Of course they had a right, you know, to wear those crowns. Those crowns were given to them by God himself as they confessed that he has the right of rulership. The casting down of their crowns at the feet of our Lord is also an acknowledgement that God alone is worthy of ultimate praise and worship. We see so much forces being made, you know, of one individual, sometimes some individuals, and thanks is being lavish upon others, humanly speaking. And, you know, thanks is not being given to Almighty God. Because when we as human beings or any person do something, you know, that is great and exciting in the eyes of humanity, 
Well, of course, that's good. We thank God for life and health and strength that he's given to such individual, you know, whether man or woman, to accomplish such great act. You know, something, you know, that is really worthwhile and profitable and good and sensible. I say thank God. We should always say thank God for such, you know, person. But who is it that has kept that individual? We need to look at such things, even they might be seemingly insignificant. What about life and health and strength? We wake up the individual morning, you know, noon or night, whenever the individual go to sleep and wake up. Who keep the individual clothed in his or her right mind to accomplish such great feet or such great things? Well, we don't think that that isn't it simple, hmm? but it is God. Because we can't live, we can't move, we can't have any being without Almighty God. That's scripture. So the worship of the 24 elders is also instructive. It contains edifying matters or that which builds one up. It conveys knowledge or information. Worship is what belongs to God and God alone, not man. What do we do? We give worship to man, isn't it? And this is what Satan wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to do to him when he was in the wilderness. And he was there 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry after. Well, who fast 40 days and 40 nights will be hungry and thirsty? And he wanted Jesus to make the stones into bread. He wanted him to cast himself down from the highest pinnacle of the temple because angels below will catch him before he hit his foot, you know, on the ground. He wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to fall and worship him. He gave him all the kingdoms of the world that didn't belong to him, but he said they were his. And he has the authority to give them to whoever he want. He gave them to Jesus if Jesus were falling and worship him. And every time the Lord Jesus Christ used the word, so therefore he had to scatter. <laughs> angels came then and ministered unto him, but you see, he had only left him for a little season. But he kept up, you know, his work. And he wouldn't leave the Lord Jesus Christ until the time came when he went to Calvary's cross. And Satan thought, well, more or less, this is it now. He's dead. But Jesus Christ, you know, came back to life. The resurrection power, I believe, I believe firmly that the resurrection power was already in Christ. And God raised him from the dead. It was activated, and the Lord Jesus Christ got up. And he said, I'm he that liveth, and was dead, was past tense, but now he's alive for all time, forevermore. It is the special work done by his saints as unto him, telling him how positively and worthy he is to receive our praise and adoration. Of course, God is worthy to receive praise and adoration and worship. It belongs to him and him alone. But we give it to men, you know, just like we give it to God sometimes. I hope and pray that everyone who listen to the teaching of God's word will give God some place, you know, and time in their own heart and mind. It is to him that we have to stand before in judgment and given a call. Don't look at the present situation, even though, you know, it 
maybe fixing our thoughts and our minds, what next, what is going to happen. But these things are only the beginning, the start, the commencement of sorrows. Sorrows, not the word. It never said sorrow. That's singular. But there are many. So there are many more to come. Sorrows, plural. I pray that as you listen to the teaching of the word of God, you will think seriously and you'll make a decision to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we give thanks for this time that we're able to listen to your word and we pray that the Holy Spirit will send that conviction right into our hearts and our thoughts and our minds and we will think carefully. We will meditate upon them, Lord, and we will surrender our lives to your Lordship and allow you to have first place in our thoughts, in our thinking, in our entire lives. Minister now, Lord, to every need we pray and bless us in Jesus' name, we give thanks. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>